Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 13, our text this morning, verses 1 through 9. Even though we've moved to a new chapter, the setting of the action is unchanged. Jesus is teaching in the region of Judea, the southern part of Israel. He has emerged from a luncheon with some Pharisees where he and his inner circle of disciples are immediately surrounded by throngs of people. He gives his disciples a series of warnings concerning, number one, avoiding religious hypocrisy, the leaven of the Pharisees, he calls it. He tells them to avoid at all costs the sin of greed. And he tells them above all to be ready for the second coming. Now last Sunday we attempted to contrast the Jesus that's presented here in the Bible with the Jesus of culture's imagination. Remember the Jesus of the Bible, the true Jesus, declared that he came to bring division on the earth. That division extends to every part of the culture and even manifests itself in family units. There are many families that have some members that are Christians and some are not. Some believe on Jesus, others reject him. We noted that Jesus, the same Jesus who brought division, seems to be at odds with the imaginary Jesus that accepts all religions as equally valid and credible. But we also saw last week that the Jesus of the Bible warns of a coming final judgment for every person. This perhaps is the most culturally offensive aspect of the true Jesus and of the Bible for that matter. You see, the imaginary Jesus of the culture would never judge anyone or anything because he is benign and not at all dangerous. C.S. Lewis, that great writer of a previous generation, grasped that tension of Jesus' deity and his danger in his famous work, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You remember these uh, children, these brothers and sisters are transported into a fantasy world and that fantasy really was an allegory of the gospel where the king of the land was called Aslan, who was a lion. And so Susan, the heroine of the story, is about to be introduced to the king by Mr. Beaver. And Mr. Beaver says to Susan, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That is the Jesus of the Bible. He is the king and he's good and yet he brings a message of judgment. He's a dangerous king. And we're gonna talk about the full extent today of how dangerous it is to ignore the king. And I'm gonna tell you up front, this is a hard message. Hard message to preach, and it's gonna be a hard lesson to listen to, but I think it is absolutely timely and absolutely necessary for the age in which we live. So let's read our text, Luke chapter 13, verses one through nine. Now on the same occasion, that is it's a continuation of the conversation he's been having. 
On the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have been looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now there are really two halves of this message from Jesus here in this section of scripture, verses one through nine. But both continue on the same theme of coming judgment and of the urgency of repentance. The first lesson we find is the lesson of human disaster. Look at verse one. On the same occasion, there was some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with sacrifices. Now Jesus was in the business and is in the business of correcting popular misunderstandings about God and His Word and His law. And in this case, He's correcting a misunderstanding about the nature of human suffering. You remember that Jesus, when He taught, would often use the phrase, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, He said to the people present there, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's one of the Ten Commandments. But Jesus said, I say unto you, if a man looks upon a woman to lust, he has committed adultery already in his heart. The point being is that most of the people of Jesus' day felt as long as they didn't commit the physical act of adultery, then, then they were safe. Then they were not guilty of breaking that commandment. But Jesus says the heart of the law is the mind. It is the attitude. And so he says, if you commit adultery in your heart, it is a sin. You've broken that commandment. Well, here's another popular misunderstanding about God in Jesus' day. And that was this, that if a person suffers what we would perceive to be particularly harsh circumstances, maybe they're born with an affliction or maybe some disaster befalls them, it must be evidence that that person is particularly sinful. Now that was an attitude that goes back as far as we believe the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job. Do you remember when Job lost his family and lost his health and lost all of his possessions? His three best friends came to see him and they immediately accused him of heinous sin. Their thinking was that, well, you've had such a disastrous week, Job, you must have some unconfessed sin in your life. We know that was not the case. But here we have the New Testament era, 2,000 years ago, hundreds of years after the book of Job was written. John chapter 9, Jesus is walking down the street with His disciples. They come upon a man who was blind. And their question to Jesus was not, how can we help this man? How should we offer ministry to him? Their question was, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither. This was for the glory of God. Well, that misunderstanding about human suffering 
as you know, continues on to this day. There are those who believe when there's a natural disaster or if someone has um, some circumstances in their life we would perceive to be particularly harsh or difficult that maybe God is punishing them. I remember a few years ago there was a devastating earthquake in the Caribbean and one of those poor island nations was all but decimated. Thousands of people were killed and the reporters turned to some evangelical pastors and asked for their take on this particular situation and several of them with cameras rolling said, well, the history of that nation is particularly sinful and this is God punishing them. Jesus here uses two examples from the local headlines of his day. Now we don't know much about either one of these situations historically, but apparently the people Jesus was speaking to, this was a topic of conversation of the day. And, and the first example is suffering at the hands of other people. He tells the story of some Galileans. Jesus was and lived in the region of Galilee. His disciples were for the most part Galilean. They had come down to Judea and apparently these Galileans that are mentioned in his story had traveled to Jerusalem probably to worship in the temple. While they were there offering sacrifices some Roman soldiers put them to death by the sword and that's what it means I take it when it says their blood was mingled with the sacrifices. Now this was outrageous to the Jewish people and yet Jesus knew that the people were thinking these Galileans must have been particularly terrible sinners for God to allow something like this to happen. And then he uses a second example of what we would call today a natural disaster or an accident. There was a tower called the Tower of Siloam and perhaps it was under construction but whatever the case it gave way and crumbled and 18 people lost their life instantly. Now the first example, the Galileans killed by Pilate. Now most of you recall this same Pilate was the Roman governor over Judea. The, the same Pilate that pressured by the Jews ultimately agreed to the Lord Jesus' crucifixion. And if there's anything we know historically about Pilate, he was an unwise leader. Now you know that the Romans ruled provinces all over the world and their chief aim in taking over provinces and territory was tax revenue. So it was in their interest to keep the peace in the provinces so that commerce would not be interrupted because when commerce was going on, taxation was happening and tax revenue was what they wanted from the provinces. So to keep the peace, to keep the tax revenue rolling in, first of all, they built a wonderful road system and infrastructure wherever they went. And along that infrastructure, they would put fortresses. And one of the places they would put a fort and soldiers to keep the peace was in Jerusalem, which was a conquered city. And they would place governors to rule over these regions and Pilate was one of these governors. Now when Pilate started his career in Judea he got off on the wrong foot. First thing that he did was he had a parade where he brought in all of the images of his boss the Emperor. Now the thing about the Emperor of Rome is that not only did he claim to be the Emperor of the Roman Empire he also claimed to be a god. And so these were graven images. And so in the minds of the Jewish people, by bringing these images of the Roman emperor who claimed to be a god, they were breaking the first and second commandments. To have no other gods before the true God and to have no graven images. And so a riot ensued on his first day in office. And from that point on, the peace was tenuous and fragile to say the least. 
Apparently, here's another example of something foolish he did. He killed some Galileans or had them killed, probably there on the temple grounds. And so Pilate was an unpopular figure and unpopular figures sometimes led to rebellion and rebellion led to the end of taxation and the end of taxation caused governors to lose their jobs. So let's look at verse two as Jesus offers commentary. Someone in the crowd says, hey, have you heard this story of Pilate killing these Galileans? What do you think? And Jesus said to them, verse two, do you suppose? And that's what we looked at last week, right? The Jesus of imagination, the one we conjure up in our mind. And so he knew they were thinking some things about God as it related to human suffering. And so he says, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? That's exactly what they were thinking. Of course, isn't that why anyone suffers is because they are particularly sinful. And Jesus corrects that by saying, I tell you, no, that's not the case. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now you'll note he didn't say they weren't sinners. He didn't say they were punished for being exceptional sinners. The point is that all sinners deserve God's wrath. Now the second example is what we would put in the category of an accident, a tower falling and killing 18 people, verse 4. So he follows up on that question with what he knew was also on their mind. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Same question. Third time he's asked it in two chapters. Do you suppose? Have you created in your imagination a God that's not the God of the Bible. The answer, of course, was they had. And so his point is that the lesson of human suffering, whether it's at the hand of other humans, man's inhumanity against man, or what we would call an act of God or an accident of nature, whatever the cause of human suffering, the message of it for those of us who were not affected by it is a warning. It's a warning that one day soon our lives are going to be required of us and one day we will be judged. And ultimately the warning is this, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. About 25 years ago I received in the mail, this tells you it is 25 years ago, some VHS tapes. <laughs> and it was a sermon series of a young pastor in Denton, Texas named Tommy Nelson. Tommy's not so young anymore, he's like all of us, but he's still pastoring there at Denton Bible Church. Tommy became really nationally famous for a series of messages he preached on the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon, you may know, is about romantic love between husbands and wives, and it is pretty explicit in some of its parts describing physical love. Tommy used to tell that every time without fail when he would read the Song of Solomon out loud in a congregation that someone was bound to do one of these. <laughs> because they weren't sure that belonged in the Bible. Well, there may be some of you here who have heard last week that Jesus said that he comes to bring division. And you hear today that he says that human suffering is to remind all of us that we all deserve it. Maybe you want to look at the front of your Bible because that doesn't sound like the Jesus you've been told about. Because the Jesus you've been told about may be the Jesus of culture's imagination. 
what you've heard today is the Jesus of the Bible. And friends, we need to know what the Jesus of the Bible has to say about all things, particularly as it relates to the judgment. Now it's important, first of all, to remind ourselves that Jesus was not and is not unmoved or cold towards human suffering. You hear me say all the time that we serve a sympathetic Savior, and He is. He healed countless thousands of hurting people. He cast out demons. He cleansed the lepers. He gave sight to the blind. He raised the dead. He comforted the grieving. He gave dignity to those that society had cast aside. He is a sympathetic Savior in every way, but not just to those in His generation. To this day, He is inviting us to cast our cares on Him because He cares for us. The point that he is making here in our text today is that as terrible and tragic as human suffering is, it is not the ultimate disaster. The ultimate disaster, friends, is the disaster of unrepentance. In fact, I believe these nine verses that I read this morning are really a commentary on a verse we looked at some weeks ago in chapter 12. Back up to Luke 12, verse 4. Luke 12, verse 4. This is what Jesus says. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And the rest of that chapter, and including into chapter 13, is a commentary on those two truths. That human suffering is tragic, but it's not as tragic as the eternal suffering that people are going to endure if they do not repent and if they reject the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate disaster, to not be ready for the judgment. And the only way to be ready for the judgment is repentance of sins, and faith in Jesus Christ. Twice in these nine verses, Jesus says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Now, what does it mean, you will likewise perish? Does it mean a tower is going to fall on you? That's unlikely. Does that mean a Roman soldier is going to run a sword through you while you're worshiping? That's unlikely. I think what he means is that you're going to be judged quickly and thoroughly, and at a time you're not expecting it. When you're worshiping in the temple, you're not expecting that to be your last act of worship. When you're going to work and a tower falls on you, you didn't wake up that morning with the belief this would be your last day on earth. That's what it means. The, the people in those two scenarios were going about life just like you and I do every day. They were going to work, they were paying their taxes, they were ordering lunch. Well, this word perish doesn't mean just death. There are those who've tried to convince us that it does, but in the context it can't mean just that. Because we know it's not just the wicked that die. It's appointed to every man, Hebrews says, to die and then to be judged by God. I think the key is John 3.16. We see that word again, don't we? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not, what? Perish but have everlasting life. That's no promise that you won't die. That's a promise that you'll not be judged by God. 
that you will not face his wrath. It's the same promise of Romans 8, 1, which says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To perish means to come under the righteous wrath of God. Well, it's a hard word. Jesus is saying the most disastrous thing that could happen to a person is, is not to die a sudden and unexpected death. He's not diminishing the pain of that. He's saying that the most disastrous thing that could befall any human being is to be spiritually unprepared for death. And the reason is our third point, the certainty of judgment. Now he transitions into a parable. And these two things are not unrelated. This parable is a commentary on the first five verses. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and it did not find any. And he said to the, vine, the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir. For this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. For if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. Now I'm aware that any talk of judgment in our day is out of vogue. People today want to know how to have their best life now. Friends, if your best life is now, I grieve for you. I have little to no concern for you having your best life now. And the reason is the Bible says this life is like a vapor. It is here today and it is gone tomorrow. Even if you have a perfect life here, whatever that would look like, if you're not prepared for eternity, you would have wasted your life. Because this life is so brief and because what you do with Jesus and the gospel in this life determines where you will spend eternity, I must tell you, some pretty harsh things. It's not me saying it's the Lord Jesus in reality. And he uses this parable of a master who owns a vineyard. Now this is certainly not the first time in the Bible that we find a parable about a vineyard. And in most cases it has to do with God's relationship with his covenant people Israel. Let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 5 in our Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 5 we have God's prophet Isaiah who's been sent to pronounce judgment on Israel because of their continued sinfulness. And God gives him this parable of a vineyard and he's preaching this to Israel. Isaiah 5 verse 1 says, Let me now sing for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its walls and it will be trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. Now listen to this, verse 7. 
for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Now, not in every parable in the Bible is it explained, but that one is. He is saying the vineyard in that parable is Israel, God's chosen people. And God says to Israel, what more could I do for you? He gave them the promised land. He gave them cities that they did not build and farms that they did not cultivate. And so they go in and they take over this fertile land, this land flowing with milk and honey. He defeats their enemies before them, as we saw in the book of Joshua last summer, in a miraculous way. He sent prophets to give them God's plan and to warn them. Generation after generation, he was long-suffering and merciful with them. He put a tower right in the middle of the vineyard. I take that to be the city of Jerusalem. He established the sacrificial system, all of it pointing to his eternal redemptive plan. And what he asked of Israel, after giving them a choice, fertile piece of land, giving them the best plants, now produce fruit. But he says instead of producing fruit, in the Hebrew it says they produced bu'ushim, which were these little dried up huckleberries that were worthless. And Isaiah is saying on behalf of the Lord, I'm going to tear down your hedges, your protection. I'm going to allow the nations to swoop in and, and take you over. Now keep that in mind as we go back to, to Luke chapter 12. In this case, he used an example of a master who has a vineyard and in that vineyard he plants a fig tree. And I take it a, a good and healthy fig tree. And not only that, he puts in charge of the fig tree a groundsman, a gardener, a vineyard keeper. And he's supposed to fertilize it, cultivate it. That is, he, he's going to water it. He's going to do everything possible to put it in the best position to produce fruit. But he comes by for the third year in a row and he examines the fig tree at the time of year in which figs should be on it and there's nothing. And in anger he says, rip it out of the ground. I'm not going to let it steal the nutrients and the water that these other good plants could be using. And then the vine keeper intercedes and he says, let's give it one more year. Let, let me hoe around it and mix up the soil and fertilize it and, and water it. And, and if this time next year it still hasn't produced fruit, then do what you will. But, but let's give it one more year. Now, of course, Jesus is a Jewish man and he's speaking in the context of Israel. But what he says here about Israel and in Isaiah 5 is also true today. He says right here in this very section of Scripture, to whom much is given, much will be required. And what Israel had been given, they had been given the law and the prophets. They had seen God in the flesh in the person of Jesus. They had watched Him perform miracle after miracle. They had heard the gracious and the authoritative way in which He taught. And yet, for the most part, they willfully, stubbornly refused to repent and believe. And God, had He struck them all dead, would have been just to do so. And yet someone is saying, give them one more year. Let's give them a little bit more time. And friends, let me come to the point of the message today. We are no less sinful than the island of Haiti that was struck by that earthquake I mentioned earlier. We are no less sinful as a people than the Jewish people of Isaiah's day. 
Let's just be real honest about what's happened in our culture in the last few years. We have redefined marriage to be an abomination. We have passed laws that prevent people from helping a newborn baby to live. We have taken the Bible, cast it aside, and said to God, in effect, no thank you. And the reason that God has not poured his full weight of judgment upon us is not owing to our goodness, but to his mercy. Because there are Christians still around who are interceding like that gardener. Jesus says the function of Christians in the culture is to be light and salt. The light holds up the gospel and say, this way to heaven. But the salt is a preservative. And if you think our culture is rotten today, it is. But if you take the church out of the public square, you will see rottenness. You will see depravity go to its logical conclusion. And so we have a task today before us, I believe. Someone asked me this week, why do you keep praying for mercy? I will tell you why. Because I find it very difficult to pray for blessing these days. Almost every time I, I stand to pray or kneel to pray, and I think about what's going on in our land, I do not pray for blessing. I say, God, have mercy on us. Will you withhold your wrath a little longer so that we can preach a little longer, so that we can call people to repentance a little longer. That's what Moses did on behalf of his people. That's what our task I see today is to ask the Lord for mercy. And while we're asking for mercy, we need to ask him to send revival and awakening. Lord, would you turn us around before your judgment comes? As you look to your family and to your friends, I'm not just talking about the culture at large. I'm talking about people you know who enjoy the Lord's blessing as we do day after day and week after week and year after year. I believe our, our basic task today, along with sharing the gospel with them, is to pray for mercy, that the Lord would withhold his judgment a little bit longer. The scripture says it's, Nothing new under the sun. In fact, Scripture says, as it was in the days of Noah, it will be when the Lord comes back. Do you remember what it was like in the days of Noah? People were just going on with life. They were marrying and getting married. They were planning for the future. They were investing for retirement. They didn't have any thought that the world was about to end. But Noah and his sons every day would go to work and they'd work on that ark. You know how long it took them to build the ark? People forget this. About a hundred years as I recall. And I take it for that hundred years, God is offering them mercy. If you will repent, if you'll get on the boat, you don't have to endure my wrath. The Apostle Peter, thinking of those days, says it's going to be that way in the last days scoffers will come with their scoffing and they're going to say to the church, where's the sign of his coming? You've been saying for 2,000 years that Jesus was going to return and judge the earth. He hasn't come yet. Doesn't look like he's coming. Just like those people for 100 years in Noah's day were saying, where's that rain you were promising, Noah? 
And then one day, that first big drop hit someone right on the tip of the nose. And it came. And it came fast, and it came hard, and it came on a day that they were not expecting. And it was thorough. And Jesus is saying, you better be ready. Every time you see a tragedy on the news, or on the internet, or you read a headline in the paper, rather than thinking those people should have repented, it ought to remind each one of us, unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. And so I'm going to ask you the same question I asked you last week. Are you ready? Are you ready to die? Are you ready if the Lord would come again to judge today? What I mean by that is on what are you depending your eternal future? If it's anything other than the substitutionary death on the cross, you're going to be found lacking. You're going to be outside of the ark. You're going to be one of those people in which judgment comes thoroughly and when you're not expecting it. The only way to be ready is by divesting yourself of anything that you view as valuable as far as works righteousness and coming to him on his terms with empty hands and outturned pockets and with the attitude of humility which says, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. See, before we pray for mercy for the culture, we have to have prayed for mercy for ourselves. See, mercy is God's withholding punishment that we rightly deserve. Its twin brother is grace. Grace is getting something good from God, in this case salvation, that we have not earned and we have not deserved. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the book on salvation, the book of Romans and also the book of Ephesians, says salvation is by grace through faith. That is, it has to be God giving you something good that you have not earned, how do you appropriate that? He says through faith, that is through belief. It's not through doing good deeds. It's not through reformation. It's through repentance and faith. It's through regeneration, through being born again, by becoming a new creature. So friend, if you're here today and you have trusted in anything other than the shed blood of Jesus, I plead with you today to get rid of that. Count it as worthless. Come to Jesus on his terms. Run to the cross. Embrace his grace. Receive his gift of salvation and be marvelously saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. It's a hard word today. It's one we don't often hear anymore. Seems out of date. Seems a relic of the past. And yet your word has not changed. You have not changed. You're the same God as you were in the days of Job and Isaiah, as you were in the days of Jesus, you are today. You are good and merciful and long-suffering and kind, but you're also just. And one day your patience will come to an end. And just as you did for the nation of Israel in the days of Isaiah, just as you did in the days of Noah, you're going to judge every man and woman, boy and girl. Father, I know that if I were to be judged based on my own life, I would fall woefully short. But because you opened my blind eyes as a seven-year-old boy, 
because you showed me my guilt and sin. And because you pursued me. Because you brought people into my life who told me the truth. Father, you granted me faith and repentance. And my hope today is that of Paul's in Romans 8, 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I would pray if there's anyone here today who is not in Christ, that they would flee to him, that they would plea for mercy. And you have promised that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. While there's no other name given among earth whereby we must be saved in the name of Jesus. So I pray you'd call the lost to salvation today. And for many here who are saved, Father, we pray there would be a renewal of zeal for the gospel. Father, that we would view ourselves as intercessors for our family and friends and indeed our nation. That you would withhold your wrath just a little longer. Give us one more opportunity to share the gospel with him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.